Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Big Blend Radio's Military Monday show. Uh, You hear that music, you know Mike Guardia is joining us. He is on our show every first Monday, and today we get to air live. We love this. Uh, We do a lot of pre-records, but uh, we're doing a lot more live shows this year, especially with our anniversary. And Mike Guardia is on our Big Blend Radio show every first Monday. He is an award-winning and internationally recognized military historian and author, And he is joining us today to talk about his brand new book that was just released this weekend. We've talked about it on probably the last, I don't know, two, three, four shows. We've been waiting for it, and we keep waiting Mm -hmm. and waiting because he's now the author, I think, of 22 books now. It's gone up. Mm -hmm. Uh, His new book is The Combat Diaries, True Stories from the Front Lines of World War II. So I encourage you to go check it out on Amazon. Uh, go to his website, MikeGuardia.com. But welcome back. How are you, Mike? Hey, ladies, I'm doing great. Always a pleasure to be on the show. Hey, it is good to have you back. I do want to tell everybody mm-hmm. and you that um, we are airing live from a small town in the Pacific Northwest in Washington State known as El Waco. I'm trying to get this right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> El Waco? El Waco? It's El no, Waco. 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 yeah. And we're across like from Waco. a firehouse, and we have a firehouse dog. Because <laughs> her name's Ember, right? Um, so anything could happen during the show since we're live. So if anything goes off, that's what's going on. But we'll try to protect your ears. But, um, Mike, I think it's really pretty cool that Nancy and I are in the Pacific Northwest and we've been yeah, what, sure. traveling through here the last couple months, mm. and we're seeing more and more World War II history, uh, specifically on the ocean front. You know, a lot of the mm-hmm. you know the memorials are different. On our way here, we talked last month about the POW camps we've experienced in the Southwest, but all of a sudden here we're seeing bits of submarines. Uh, we're seeing veterans mm-hmm. uh, that were at sea here. So I think it's kind of fitting that we're talking about combat diaries and World War II because you kind of forget it. And all of a sudden you're walking on this is such a beautiful coastal area. It's dramatic. I don't even understand how they were doing stuff out here with all the rocks and how this is not a, this is not an easy ocean out here. What were they doing out here? Like seriously? I mean, were they watching out? I mean, what was going on in world war two here in the Pacific Northwest? All righty. So let's see in the Pacific Northwest, had a lot of activity that was happening at Fort Lewis, Washington. Uh, That was one of the uh, primary hubs for soldiers that were going uh, to the Pacific and coming from the Pacific. Um, As a matter of fact, there is one story in the combat diaries of a particular gentleman who was with his unit, and they were doing their pre-mobilization training at Fort Lewis before they headed out to the Philippines. And uh, ironically enough, they landed in the Philippines only a few months before the Japanese invaded. Uh, So you had a lot of activity going on in Fort Lewis. And uh, there was also, I think, a high-priority defense of the area because there was Japanese activity within the Aleutian Islands um, in Alaska. And, you know, Mm. they – and the War Department saw this as a critical crossroads. They said, okay, well, you know, if the uh, Japanese have been as mobile across the Pacific as we've seen over the past few years, and they've already uh, gotten a uh, toehold on the Aleutian Islands, well, their next most likely course of action would be to, you know, establish a foothold within Puget Sound or anywhere Within mm-hmm. the Pacific North, with anywhere within the Pacific Northwest, and uh, yeah, that's why there were uh, that's why there was a big priority defense on that part of the country, and really throughout the entire West Coast, for that matter, because yeah. uh, very early on, uh, 
a lot of folks within the War Department were saying to themselves and uh, telling any decision maker who would listen, well, look, if Pearl Harbor was the first target, don't be surprised mm-hmm. if San Francisco or L.A. became mm-hmm. the next targets. Oh, yeah. wow. So we're looking at it mm-hmm. that way. So it was it. that's where it kind of yeah. like, okay, we need to all like bunker mm-hmm. down and so it, it was it, I think, because, you know, we've talked about that even in Central California where we've seen even out on right. the farms, like, you know, away from the coast with watchtowers. So did they start doing more of the, the watchtowers? And, I mean, even all the nuclear warheads, was all of that around that time frame, was that all kind of after Pearl Harbor or were they just protective at the beginning? Well, I mean, if we're talking in terms of nuclear warheads, I mean, that, it came quite a ways after. Um, okay. You know, if uh, yeah, if we're if, if we're looking strictly from the standpoint of building watchtowers, that was uh, that was something that uh, started in the 1940s. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and well, I actually shouldn't say it started in the 1940s. It just started to reach critical mass at that point. Um, but you know, building coastal defenses was a long part of um, our military tradition. And every so often, you would have these reinforced coastal artillery batteries, uh, and you would also have a you would also have a series of watch stations that would be able to relay information to a coastal battery, or you know act as a relay station to uh, any one of those uh, any one of those civil defense assets that we had. Mm. Isn't one of the strategies that our government has and has always had is Okay, we might go to war, but keep it on somebody else's place, somebody else's terrain. Don't come here. Like we're building our defenses so um, strong that if you come in into our territory, you're going to be gone before you even think twice. If I can put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I I, uh, I think all things considered, uh, we've always preferred to uh, keep the war abroad. But, you know, we, we've we always erred on the side of caution, too, saying, well, you know, we can't guarantee that uh, the right. oceans on either side of us are going to keep the enemies from reaching our shores. So if mm-hmm. they do, you know, we need to have some type of system in place to say, okay, sure. well, you know, we have these identifiable routes of egress, and, you know, we, we have all of these designated fallback points for any of our local militias. And uh, then we have, you know, we have each one of these divisions that are stationed at our stateside bases. How quickly can they mobilize from their point of origin to a critical juncture to stop the enemy's advance? Mm. This is interesting because I know you've you've also written uh, American Armor in the Pacific, which we've covered a few times in different stories and ways. And uh, you've also done it on the East, you know, uh, you know, air war on the Eastern Front. You've covered uh, World War II uh, quite a bit. And, and there's also um, Aracourt, the 1944, that book too, the Battle of Aracourt. So when you were doing the combat diaries, because these are stories of veterans, and I think this is a really important thing we should touch on. Um, you know, we're at that that change of guard, should we say? You know, there's generations are moving on, and you're, you were able to get these stories did all the research you did in writing your other books help you for the combat diaries in regards to, you know, setting the scene and understanding what these men went through in, you know, on the front lines? Oh, absolutely. It did. Yeah. You know, I, I think what I have learned over time with all of the books that I've researched and written is that, you know, in order to tell a story effectively, I think I really have to tell it from the perspective of the human element, you know, mm-hmm. and what, sure. what what I've wanted all of my readers to take away uh, from each one of the stories that I've written about is that war is never truly a clinical pursuit, you know, and it really can't be told um, from a bird's eye view in a parochial sense that, okay, you on that you, you had this battle on this particular day mm-hmm. where this unit fought this unit and X amount of lives were lost. And it was a, it was of a strategic critical importance because of reasons X, Y, and Z. I really want them to understand that, you know, whenever war is pursued, it's never pursued in clinical terms. There's always going to be a human element to it. And each one mm-hmm. of those living, breathing, 
persons on the front line brings a unique perspective. They can all agree on the facts of what happened and, you know, the hard data, but their interpretations and their analyses and how they perceive the action happening in front of them is really what adds a richer dimension to the narrative and also shows you in a broader sense that, you know, when you do send people into harm's way, this is how they deal with the trauma that's Mm. happening right in front of them. And this is what they take with them going forward after the conflict ends. Mm. I think that's a really important point because I know from when I was in, in school and reading history books, I thought history was the most boring thing ever because of the way it was presented. It was, oh, here's your timeline and your dates and two sentences about each thing. And, like, how can you sum up a war, a global war, in two sentences? Please. There's yeah, got to be more to that story. And, I mean, really, the textbooks were so dry and boring that I really just didn't care. When I got out, you of needed Mike. Started... You needed military Mike well, as no, a teacher. <laughs> no, and and well, it's true. And then when you start going to libraries, not being told to, and you go on your own, and you ask the librarian for something, then you get the real. Stuff. Oh, I love librarians. And and you know, I'm not talking about schools today, so I don't need a bunch of emails. I'm talking about schools when how history was taught. I mean, I remember these mimeograph sheets, and it was the date in two sentences for a war when so many hundreds of people got killed. Mm-hmm. And that's what they got, two sentences in purple ink on a piece of paper. Like, no, mm-hmm. that can't I can right. smell that sheet, uh, sheet of paper, too. Yeah, like, I remember it, I had that in school, too. And it, <laughs> Exactly. And so, I mean, history is so important, so we don't keep making the same mistakes. So... I would like to see history presented in a in the fashion that you've written it, like the real oh, story, yeah. and make the people people because mm-hmm. they were people with mm-hmm. feelings and families. And and mm. I get really sorry. Get no, but it's, it's true. But I think, but it, but that's the thing. I think you we talk about this every time you're on the show about your writing that you really put, you get us to understand what a soldier has gone through, whether it's a, a man or a woman, you know, mm-hmm. and you really get us to understand this sacrifice, the push through. I mean, even in this book, you have stories. Uh, you mm-hmm. always get these stories where there's, and I, when I say go rogue, it's just because of your <laughs> book title too, but it's like they, you know, there are soldiers in these stories where, they didn't even wait for a command that they saved a troop and got home because they jumped yeah. and did something, you know, they thought mm-hmm. forward and acted. And, and I think when world war two, let's, can we back up a little bit about this? Because we had world war one, world war two. I mean, how ready were we as a country in America, like America for world war two, the training seemed just reading their stories the training did not seem like fun, and you had a lot of people enlisting from all walks of life that really said we have to stand up and do something. So it, right. boot camp didn't sound fun to me from some of the stories I was reading. It's like, and yet they go from that to, it seemed like a fast. Well, your book reads really fast you know, yet you're really touched and connected with the person you're writing about each story. It's a collection of all these stories, you know, but um, it seems like going into world war two, there was some knowledge from world war one, but at the same time, these soldiers just, they went for, I mean, they went for it, no matter what their background, they went for it. And boot camp was hardcore. They did get some training, but it was still a very, very much a matter of thinking on your own once you got out there in some some circumstances. Right, and uh, that is what so many of our veterans were faced with at the time. You know, uh, they really had a slapdash training program, and uh, even though it was rigorous, you know, we were still working against a lot of years of atrophy because, you know, mm. we didn't have the priority defense dollars that we needed. We didn't have the priority equipment that we needed. So it was probably the biggest sense of trial and error with the biggest sense of urgency that was attached to it. 
And uh, the fact that they were able to improvise, adapt, and overcome in the manner that I did is uh, really just nothing short of a miracle. You know, I, mean, mm. I, I was going through all of these oral histories, and, you know, even as I was interviewing mm. some of these veterans, I just kept thinking to myself, I mean, my God, what, uh, what an incredible testament to your resourcefulness mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, your, your problem-solving abilities. And I couldn't help but wonder at the same time, you know, was this a product of your upbringing during the Great Depression where you had to improvise and adapt almost on a daily basis as a function of what the economic realities were? Because life was not easy for a big swath of the country during those darkest days of the Depression. And, you know, you didn't have the luxury of of, uh, of mass consumer electronics and automation. So uh, life was much more of a chore. And uh, at the same time, I was thinking to myself, well, gosh, could uh, more current generations be able to think on their feet and adapt as well as some of these older generations have? You know, and it, and I'm sure that yeah. we could, you know, uh, but I would, I'm just wondering if the learning curve would be as steep as it was because, you know, the, the, the lessons that you tend to learn the quickest are the ones that are the hardest and the ones that, you know, really – the ones that are really backed mm-hmm. by a uh, a huge sense of urgency and, uh, you know, big – big items that are at stake, but, you know, I'm just wondering if the uh, learning curve was a lot steeper for these guys because they had such a rough upbringing. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. One night, one goal. Stop suicide. On June 3rd, Washington, D.C. will host the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention's Out of the Darkness Overnight Walk. Join thousands as we journey over 16 miles from dusk till dawn for a night of hope and healing while raising funds and awareness for this important cause. Register today at theovernight.org or call 888-THE-OVERNIGHT. That's 888-843-6837. You know, there's something my grandmother used to say, and she would always say, if you're on the side of right, you go deeper. And I feel like in in something like, especially in World War II, where, I mean, are you really going to sit on the sidelines and wait for Hitler to come into our country? Are you going to say, hey, wait a minute, this is not happening on our turf or anybody else's, and you're going to get in there on the side of right? And I think that our soldiers have that mm-hmm. side of right. When we're on the side of right, you know, and I'm looking what's happening today between Ukraine and Russia, and I'm reading right. like some of the Russian soldiers are like, I don't want to be here. Yes, I don't you? believe in this. You know, so mm-hmm. they're not on the side of right. So their military is weaker because of that. Mm. Yeah, and so I think that's a major thing when you see when you read about these these people who put themselves way out there. They're heroes because they believe in what they're doing. They're not second guessing mm. why they're in there fighting. Yeah, yeah, they know what they're fighting for. Exactly. Mm. Is that is that where you know we you talk about this also in the beginning of the book? Now this is the greatest generation. You know that was the name, and I, I remember. Nancy talking to me about that. It wasn't in my mm. high school books in South Africa that I recall, but um, yeah. the greatest generation is that because they stood up and and mm-hmm. and kind of there's like an integrity to it, right? With with this war, with everybody that stood on the right. I mean, on the right, right. side of things. <laughs> Let me make that clear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jeez, it, it, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I um I. I know I put that in the book, and mm. the term the greatest generation has actually come under a lot of scrutiny. I mean, mm, yeah. I, I really put it in there for general purposes because mm. in a broader sense, I think collectively our culture tends to gravitate towards 
the the term the greatest generation you know as a uh, as a function of Tom Brokaw's book and mm. whenever we talk about the World War II generation that's typically the term that we apply to them and mm. you know I, I certainly think that the term itself has a lot of merit and it's certainly a term that I think is valid to use but at the same time you know, I, I have to remind myself that there were more than one generation uh, that mm. fought in World War II because, you know, mm. you had a generation of trigger pullers like my grandfather who was born in 1922. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you also had a generation uh, of the top generals like, you, you know, like MacArthur and Eisenhower mm-hmm. who were born in the late 1800s. So, you know, yeah. you have multiple generations who are fighting there. Um, but I think in a broadest sense that everyone in the country who mobilized and served in some form or fashion, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you, you can apply the term greatest generation to anyone who was alive and was of age at that point to affect some qualitative difference within the context of the war effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. You mm-hmm. know, I, I know it's like with us with our, our, our Love Your Parks tour, which started as mm-hmm. the Spirit of America tour, which we changed names. Uh, we started with that because the Spirit of America, they said, you know, Ken Burns did his, you know, National Parks thing, saying it's America's best idea. It was a National Parks, you know, service. So a lot of people mm-hmm. looked at that. Then they're going, well, wasn't uh, saying no to slavery <laughs> kind of the best idea? So we had to kind of look at this and go, you know, this may not be the best name. And so there's things in hindsight, you know, but I think – Terms and, and generational names do kind of stick of we do as human beings, we need to have something. We do need generalizing terms, generalizations as for a marker for our brain to know how to file things. <laughs> we do. And I don't know, like even Mike, as you came on the show, I'm like, oh, I was going to ask one thing about the Pacific Northwest and you have the whole history. So I don't know how many file markers you have in your brain, but you seem to have a whole <laughs> bunch of them about what's going on in history you know, to understand mm-hmm. even all the different generations that came in. That is what's interesting about war, though, too. Like, I was thinking about Helmore. You know, you've written, what, three books on Helmore. Is mm-hmm. it three? It is three, right? Yeah. Um, and you are at 22 books now. I'm now trying to get all those markers correct here. But, um, you know, I was thinking about him today, about, like, you know, he was such an, an esteemed general, and he just – he did the right thing. He was on, like – the, the correct side of the line, let's put it that way, and also took chances, risks, uh, but for the right purpose. Do you think World War II soldiers and generals um, influenced him? Like, would, would if you read your book right now, he would he would dig all all the soldiers in there. Oh sure, yeah, because mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, in a matter of speaking, he was a part of that generation. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. He. Uh, yeah, he he was at West Point when World War II was going on, and mm-hmm. you know it was uh, you know and you know there. I think there's at least a 99% probability that if he was not at West Point, then he would have been drafted into the army. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and World War II influenced so many of the points of instruction at the academy during that time, and almost every almost every uh, facet of their training as cadets was geared towards, hey, this is what you're going to need in order to fight the Axis. If you go mm-hmm. to Germany or if you go to Japan, uh, this is what you can expect to see, and here's how you will be expected to fight. And, uh, you know, what some of the other veterans uh, have told me, whom I've spoken with over the years, you know, who were either at the academy during those years or they were entering the military during – they were entering the military in those latter years of World War II, they were saying, look, you know, there was no immediate indication uh, that the war was going to be over by 1945. Uh, we really mm-hmm. had no idea when it would end. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we, certainly weren't, uh, we certainly weren't counting on the Axis powers to fold by the fall of 1945. So, you know, we, uh, we all knew that if we were raising our right hand and swearing an oath to defend the country, you know, whether it was 1944 or 1945, chances are we were going to be, we were going to be fighting a Nazi or we were going to be uh, fighting um, uh, uh, an mm-hmm. Imperial Japanese soldier mm-hmm. at some point 
in the near future. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it totally influenced his thinking. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Like, you know, going through the stories, I'm going, even just, it just seems like a, a turn for folks going, okay, I'm going to go in and go through the training and, it just seems like a really big, you know, bite of the apple of like, what the heck did I get myself into, but I'm going for it. And then next thing you know, you are in the war and it's a mixed bag of people going out there. What, what was it for you that led you to this story? Uh, and, and this, well, not story, stories, I should say. Of, right. Let me go try and get these because they're individual stories. You did have the opportunity mm-hmm. to interview some of the, of the gentlemen and, I mean, we are at that generation. You even say, like, really, we're at that end of the, that cycle. And to get those stories, I think, is really a huge and important thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I think what motivated me to do it more than anything was uh, just a sense of urgency. And uh, I, you can also say a sense of mortality. Mm-hmm. Because I remember when I was growing up in the 90s, uh, we had so many World War II veterans who were still alive. And, I mean, I saw these guys everywhere. You know, I mean, uh, the uh, I, I think most of the World War II veterans at that point were in their late 60s and early 70s. Uh, they were all still living. Uh, they were very mu- mu- much in great health. And, mm-hmm. I mean, I saw them everywhere. I saw them at the grocery stores. They were in the VFW parades. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were working yeah. out at the rec center. Um, you know, but, uh, then as I think as I got older, like right around the mid two thousands, that's when, uh, the largest percentage of the largest percentage of our world war two veterans started to pass away. Mm-hmm. And then it was a few years later. Um, now I, I can't remember where I heard this, but I, I, I heard it on multiple occasions that they started leaving us at the rate of several hundred per day. And um, by the time, you know, by the time 2015, 2016 came around, that's when it became very clear to me, okay, the youngest of the World War II veterans right now are in their late 80s and their early 90s. Mm-hmm. These, yeah. these men and women are not going to be with us much longer. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, gosh, how many of them have passed away already who mm-hmm. have taken their stories with them? And, you know, how many of them have stories that are written down, you know, that are in a file folder somewhere and really need to see the light of day and have a broader audience and which ones are still living that I can speak to right now and get their stories down on paper for future generations to benefit from. Uh, So what I did in that regard was, you know, I said, okay, well, if I can find any number of veterans out there and any number of their stories, and I can get them collectively down on paper, I can present this as a project that says, here is what normal people did when the chips were down and they had to rise to the occasion. This is somebody who could easily be your neighbor. It could be your mm-hmm. uncle. It, it could yeah. even be you in another context in another time. And when the world was confronted with a problem as great as fascism and the Axis powers, here is how they rose to the occasion. Here's mm. what they did. And we all know the broad arc of World War II, and you know we can all talk about it in a macro sense, but at the end user level, here's what it looked like. Here's what they experienced, and here's that intimate personal perspective that they bring to the equation. And that's what really motivated me to do it. And while I was, while I was working on the project – it also reminded me of something that I had heard from my father a few years back, uh, because when he was a kid growing up in the '60s, a lot of the World War One veterans were still alive, and mm-hmm. he remembered, you right. know, hey, uh, I, I remember, I remember, um, I remember the World War One veterans were all over the place. Uh, you know, we the World War Two veterans were too, but you know, they were in their 40s at this point, so you know, there wasn't there wasn't a sense of uh, there wasn't a sense of urgency that these guys were going to be passing away soon, but you know, the world war one veterans who were like in their fifties and sixties at this point, you know, they were everywhere and we saw them all over the place. But then by the time the eighties and nineties came around, well, gosh, all the world war one veterans started passing away. Mm -hmm. And then I think the last living world war one veteran uh, died in either 2011 or 2012. 
And it was a it was a phenomenon that my dad had commented on. He's like, Yeah, there were so many World War One veterans, but then they all started passing away and you were thinking, gosh, what stories could they have told? And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. well, gosh, you know, uh, that's the situation I find myself in. And, uh, yeah, I don't want to uh, I don't want to let good stories like that slip away. You know, you're really right, because, we, you know, we, we lived up in the mountains in San Diego and Julian. Um, there was an American Legion that we hang out with, and we actually did a radio show there a few years back on Fourth of July. Mm-hmm. And. It was one of the most moving shows we've ever done, and they created, because of the yeah. sound and because they had an event going, they created a bomb shelter for us. That's what they called it because for the yeah. radio yeah. show because at that time so we, we were doing it all by it. rotary phones. I mean, you got I can't even explain how we did radio shows, but that's how we yeah. did it. That was and, crazy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the Legion, you know, our band used to perform there and stuff, but the Legion taught me. Uh, it was just a special place and mm-hmm. you just, you, you're lucky to be allowed in, you know, yet families and friends could go in, but it was this special place. And, you know, they would have breakfasts on Sundays, big pancake breakfasts, and people would show up and volunteer yeah. and make, and the, everything was very structured, very military, right? Very structured, mm-hmm. how the breakfast right. would run and if they had barbecues, everything was done. And 4th of July was a big deal. And it was like the town had a parade but at the same time, this Legion was, it It was all about this Legion. And when you go hang out in the Legion, you play pool or have a cocktail with someone, they're going to, at that point, and I think back to early 2000, 2000, 2001, 2002, you know, even before that, in the late 1900s, 1900s 1999 or around, around then, um, we hung out there quite, even earlier. And there were World War II veterans and Vietnam mm-hmm. veterans, and then at the same mm-hmm. time, Gulf War guys in there. And there was this just this multi generational thing happening. And you could sit and hear, take it in because we're not people of service. You know, we are in other ways, but not in, in military service. And, you know, it, it was just a beautiful thing to see all generations come together. And then they were talking about how. You know, they try to make their bar more open to the public so that people would be interested in the American Legion. They would throw events mm-hmm. because it was almost like as the World War II veterans were passing, that generation was leaving us, that the American Legion was going away And because we're also at that point with, you know, Vietnam veterans. And so there mm-hmm. was this urgency of where do we meet? and hang out you know it, it's a it's a hangout place but it's also it, yeah it's the it, gap between they were, people who have been in combat and people who hadn't been or haven't been in combat so they were but trying to keep it alive you know bridge the gap so that there would be an understanding of what it means to go to war but also give a space a safe space for those who yeah had served and so there was this balance like your events everyone could come but then like you, you know what I mean like it, it's it's a special place where people can just be who they are and not have to worry about other people understanding them and have a, a, a free place to talk yet at the same time it's in towns where you don't have a military base so like in the 29 Palms did they really need that yeah because everybody hung out in the bars too but it's it was this special kind of community, and, and everybody took after, like such care of each other. It was, I don't know, very beautiful. So I think the, the legions, is that part of, was that started in World War One, World War Two? I mean, I don't know, but there was just, I remember when we were living there, trying to keep it going. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better? You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it, if you have the right tools, and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. With Progressive's Name Your Price tool, you can find options that fit your budget. Because giving you options is the right thing to do. 
Oh yeah, like when I hold the door for someone. Sure, it may be weird if I don't time it right, and they're a little too far away, and oh, now they're running. And we're both asking ourselves, is it worth it to run instead of just, you know, letting them open their own door? But still, it's the right thing to do. So get options based on your needs with Progressive's Name Your Price tool. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and third-party insurers. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. You know, especially right. in smaller towns because they don't have a support network in small towns. Right. Except for a legion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so the American Legion and the VFW, um, yeah, those are the two primary hubs for veterans here here mm-hmm. in the U.S. And, uh, you know, what they accomplish and the uh, camaraderie and the mutual support that they give to each other uh, is really just incredible. You know, I think mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I think that in the early days of the um, of the post World War II era, both the American Legion and the VFW were probably the closest thing to a support group that veterans could find amongst themselves. Because if you think about it, you know, in the in the immediate post World War II era, we didn't really have the same level of understanding of PTSD that we do today. Yeah, and mm. you know it. It, it uh, mm. we've come a long way in in order in order to make sure that our returning veterans um, get the emotional and the psychological support that we need. Well, mm. you think about today's mental health system, and it really didn't exist in its current form back then. And I think the closest thing you had to that mutual therapeutic society was what you found in the American Legion and also what you found in the VFW. Um, you know, so I think that, uh, I think that it serves a, a very far reaching purpose even today, you know, not only to, uh, not only to ensure that, uh, that our veterans are recognized and that they have a, they have a safe space to share amongst themselves, but that you also get that tertiary benefit of, you know, mm-hmm. being in the company of people who have shared experiences and, you can support each other in ways that the outside community won't really understand and, you know, give that additional Mm. psychological support to your brethren who really need it. Mm. I found like when in the Legion um, that some people from World War II veterans were more than willing, happy to tell you their experiences and they wanted to. Right. Vietnam veterans didn't want to say anything, and it was really mm-hmm. so a little bit though. Yeah, but I think there's a space of time that has to happen for them to be ready to talk. Right. I think they have to process, you know, and before they're talking to somebody they really don't know, it's a stranger. It's one thing talking to another person who's been through what you've been through, mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to talking to somebody who has no clue until you tell them. Mm. But I think the exchange has to happen so that people at home understand what happens when we go to war. Mm. We, need, we need to understand what mm-hmm. is actually happening to the people who go to war. And that is not about the beauty of somebody got shot and died and then they have a funeral. That is not it. It's about the day-to-day what happens to them? Treasury. The treasury. The living in the mud. The, 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 yeah. I, I, I was, you know, reading. So we don't take it so lightly. I was reading Peter Worth's story, uh, The Battle of Okinawa. And I think mm-hmm. it's, yeah, and it just, I, it just really got me. That story got me. And, <laughs> and I think it also got me too, because, you know, we've been to some of the places we've been, but. It's just you when you think about somebody just you know kid then next thing you know off you go you're a kid you're 17 years old off you go yeah and here comes you know all of the and then just even what he did with the grenades like dude <laughs> like, I did this whole like you know we play video games but like as I was reading his story I'm like his maneuvers were like a video game in a way, but it's this is someone's real footprint in real life and having to mm-hmm. go for it and really pulling right. on his training, which wasn't like maybe all and that yeah. even. You know what I mean? So it, it that that story really got me. It, it just, mm-hmm. yeah. 
I mean, think about what people go through, and I think that's the beauty of what you're doing with your books, and we say mm-hmm. that on every show, is that you're bringing the humanity in for us to understand, because even with what's happening with Ukraine right now and, and Russia, yeah. you know, I, I just look at these civilians and even army guys and gals come from this country going over to help. You know, it, it's you see people just go for it, and there's such bravery, but it's like true, real courage with integrity without the ego you know right yeah mm-hmm. amazing yeah what what story when when you were connecting with all these stories you know and and how did you find a lot of them tell us a little bit about that research part and what stories okay. kind of connected with you yeah Right. Okay. Well, let's see. I think one of the biggest resources for me um, was when I moved up here to the Twin Cities area and mm. I connected with the World War II Roundtable here in Minnesota. And that is oh. a historical society uh, that is run by a retired army colonel. And their sole purpose is to preserve a lot of the oral histories and a lot of the stories of the local World War II veterans who live here. And uh, it is an amazing program uh, that uh, actually has sponsorship from the Minnesota Historical Society. And every month uh, they have a roundtable discussion um, that records the uh, that records the stories and the recollections of living World War II veterans. And that's how I was introduced to a lot of the persons who appear in the book. And uh, not only that. You know, the other stories that I found have been through other historians with whom I've connected who have taken down their own oral histories mm. and have, uh, you know, and have recorded these interviews and transcribed them and have collected these stories over the years. And uh, it, it has been just an incredible experience to go through all of these transcripts and to interview some of these veterans themselves and just to hear what it is they have to say of you know how they uh, how they fit into the broader framework of what was the greatest conflict in human history mm-hmm. and th- there were so many of those stories that connected with me and um not to give too much of a spoiler but I'm actually planning on making the combat diaries into an entire anthology because oh, there cool. are uh, so many stories that I collected that I really want to that I really want to get down on paper and uh, you know, have, have published in the long run. But you know, uh, if I can, if I can pinpoint one that really connected to me, and you know, I, it, it, and I, I say that it connected with me because it touched a tender nerve, and it was such a story of tragic irony. Was the story of Commando Kelly? Oh, yeah, and um, for any number. Of listeners out there who are uh, unfamiliar with who Commando Kelly is, uh, that is his nickname. His given name is Charles Kelly, and uh, you know the, the the story of a tragic hero really applies to this man and his life in general because here was a boy who was born on the wrong side of the tracks, grew up in a in a very rough neighborhood of Pittsburgh. Uh, spent most of his life in in and out of juvenile detention. Spent uh, you know spent most of his childhood as a member of a street gang. And mm-hmm. uh, when World War II kicks off, despite his background as a juvenile delinquent, you know he he's accepted for military service, and actually becomes an outstanding soldier. He's proven himself in the ranks, and uh, he participates in the Allied invasion of Italy, where he distinguishes himself in wow. combat essentially becoming a one-man army holding off a superior German force. And, mm. uh, you know, he, he uh, you know, it's like when he runs out of ammunition, firing one weapon, he throws it aside and he picks up the, am- and he picks up the weapon of a dead comrade and he's just going around, going through multiple mm. um, automatic rifles, going through uh, regular rifles, bazookas even, and mm. uh, even taking mortar rounds and tapping them and tapping them on the ground to turn them into makeshift grenades. Well, he distinguishes himself in combat so well that he wins the Congressional Medal of Honor, mm. and uh, he earned every bit of that award. But then to see how he tried to adjust to civilian life afterwards and mm. uh, the tragically downward tra- uh, the downward trajectory that his life took afterwards 
you know, really just breaks your heart because you, you can't help but weep for this guy mm. and say, my God, here was a guy who, you know, went above and beyond the call of duty and he should never have had that much trouble readjusting to civilian life and, you know, finding mm. long-term viable employment. And you mm. have to think to himself, okay, you know, what did the horrors of combat and his rough upbringing skew his perceptions of reality and skew his ability to properly function in society? And might he have gotten the help he needed had there been some type of mental health apparatus available for veterans in mm. a widespread format? But, uh, you know, it just it, it, it goes to show that, uh, you know, when these veterans come back, uh, we you know, there's a I, I think it's an imperative to make sure that they can properly reintegrate and that they get the they get the proper um, help that they need mm. and learn how to develop any manner of coping neck, uh, any, any manner of coping mechanisms afterwards. Oh, you Great. know, that's really, that's really, Oh, you've reminded me of something. I remember working for a company uh, where the job application specifically asked if you were a veteran of Vietnam and every time the person said yes, they didn't get the job. I remember that because I remember going through the applications and going, well, this is a weird pattern. And talking to my boss and saying, what's up with this? And he said, because they were all drug addicts. Mm. And I'm like, whoa, dude, seriously? No, so see, that's, there's that's, now you can't. That's That's illegal now, I think. You know, if, if you it think was about it, illegal then too. But and but I just remember there's all these prejudices sometimes, and people have the wrong idea because the education isn't there because everything's so such. When when we're at war and in the military, that's why I think your books are so important to bring out. Really, these are people. They're human. They're just, you know, with the word soldier should say mm-hmm. human soldier, you know, <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah. like, and it's like a chessboard, you know, the soldiers go out, the pawns, the pawns go out like mm-hmm. that. I think we, I think humanizing what's really happening is so important. So we should not be so comfy at home that we forget what's going on. We should. Right. Right. And it, I just, yeah. No, it's this. I Nancy and I were talking. We we would love to see this as like a Netflix series, or oh, you know, love to see this, or whatever channel anybody wants to watch on that kind of thing. Um, yeah. I just you know History Channel, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm come just on, saying, since he's been on the History Channel. Yeah, hey, everyone, on. if you if you <laughs> miss Mike it, on it. the History Channel, uh, go check it out. Uh, go uh, History. I think it's History dot org. Um, it has History Channel series. I was there. And he's a featured historian on the episodes of the Johnston, Johnstown Flood of 1889, the Chernobyl disaster, the Battle of Stalingrad, and the mm. Oklahoma City bombing. And so you mm. definitely want to go and watch those if you haven't seen them. And it's just so cool to see Mike out there. I'm like, dude, this is so hey. cool. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just saying, yes, like, ma'am. knock, knock. But this would be great to have out there because I, I just see this. World War Two. we don't want to forget it, you know. And I think that it just feels so timely now, too, with what's happening with Ukraine and, and Russia. Yeah. And um, I just, do, you know, I, I feel so much for the people of Ukraine. And there's so well, many brave people doing things, you know, Um standing up to yeah. it and it kind of feels kind of world war ii ish in a way doesn't it and i wasn't there in world war ii but mm-hmm. just kind of those stories and people standing up and saying no well they're asking preventing protecting their freedom right they're, i think they, that's so they, I mean, cool. can you imagine what it was like what it would be like to have your freedom for years and then suddenly your neighbor yeah. decides to take it away Right, and and I say so cool. I'm yeah. not saying it's it's not a cool situation. I'm saying that, you know, to stand up. I think there's so many yeah. people standing up in so many ways, 
is such bravery mm-hmm. that um, I just, yeah. uh, my heart is there with them. But mm. this is a very cool book. Um, I, kudos. I, you've got to feel relieved, right? Another book out. But like this is, this is such a special book. This is, you know, you've been teasing us with stories about <laughs> the Combat Diaries for the last few months. So how does it feel now that it just, I mean, it literally just went out. Do you kind of yeah. like... Is it a big side? Do you go, like, eat a big – like, what do you do when a book goes out? How do you celebrate? Ooh. Oh, gosh. Um, I usually I usually take my girls out for an ice cream. I said, oh, you know, see, I, I knew say, ice cream was yeah, involved. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Lisa, you know me, so. <laughs> yeah, ice cream. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. You know what? The first thing I was like, ooh, I want some ice cream, but it's kind of cold here. <laughs> but, wait, but Minnesota, so we, listen – Go ahead, I was going to say, we know somebody who says ice cream is, you cannot go out on a Sunday without having an ice cream cone. No, you can't. Right. He said, that's what Sundays are created <laughs> that's for. That's what Sundays are for. <laughs> ice cream. Mm-hmm. When the sun shines yeah. on a Sunday, you're supposed to have ice cream. And that's right. we'll not take no for any answer on that. But mm-hmm. um, so everyone, uh, again, go to history.org and watch Mike. Go to MikeGuardia.com. And go get all 22 of his books. <laughs> yeah. It's a great collection. You know, when we were back home and not traveling, uh, we had an entire, like, bookshelf mm-hmm. for Mike. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Yeah, we did. And and now the bookshelf is in our storage unit because we're not getting rid of them, you know, because yeah. they're good books, uh, really good. And mm-hmm. and honestly, uh, for li- libraries, local bookstores, check that out. Uh, this is just World War II affected all of us in some way mm-hmm. in our family history. And that's something, too. Are you When you're doing stories like this, are you connecting with families like the descendants of those who, who fought and the descendants of those who you're writing about? In a lot of ways, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the uh, yeah, yeah, the family members, even of the veterans whom I've, I've spoken to, who are still living. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've, uh, I've I've built those relationships with their family members, and mm-hmm. you know, they uh, they have been an incredible resource in helping me find a lot of different data points. And you know, well, hey, we have this photo album here, or. You know, or uh, hey, here's this one thing that was buried in a file folder, and it's been there for however many years. Maybe it'll be helpful. Um, but uh, yeah. but yeah, you know, I, as a matter of fact, through throughout most of the projects that I've done, uh, you know, connecting with the family members uh, has been uh, just an incredible experience that I think adds mm-hmm. an even richer dimension to the final product. I mean. Uh, that was certainly the case when I was working on the books for Hal Moore. Um, mm. You know, I, I, I can't thank the Blackburn family enough for all the mm. help that they gave me when I was when when I, when I was putting together Don Blackburn's biography. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I consider them. Uh, you know, I consider them all close personal friends to this day. Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? Cool. But, but you're mm-hmm. keeping the stories alive, you know, and it's about courage and valor and. And just really doing the right thing, like Nancy was saying, you know, it's, and yeah, it's, I love that you make it personal because that's mm-hmm. what we need. We need to keep things personal. Yeah, exactly. And as we travel, Mike, um, you know, we keep going in places like here and I'm like going, oh, my God, here's all the stuff we've talked about with Mike, all the ocean stuff. And then I'm looking at the ocean going, mm-hmm. oh, my God, they were out there and that's some rough mm-hmm. water and it's cold and windy mm-hmm. and. Like, this is what they went through. You know, you think about it. You think about what people went through when you stand in a place, you know, a battlefield or a lookout mm-hmm. point, even a lookout point. You've got to think about the people that were always on the lookout. That's not an mm-hmm. easy job. You know what I mean? I think being the lookout, you have to the watchman. You have to be awake through, mm-hmm. you know, all in awe. Oh, and you have a story of a mailman. I mean, we forget about how mail got around in World War II. 
And so you know, right. people like that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you just, you know, there's these, these jobs that we just don't even realize. In fact, I'd love to do a show on that, like the jobs of mm-hmm. the different kinds of jobs in the military, because I don't mm-hmm. think we know, like, you know, so we should do that at one point. But um, with us traveling, I want to tell you, we are going to be in Minnesota this year. I've said this, we're gonna, or this year, next year, we're going to be doing it a lot. Um, we're doing this um and this is something that started, and I bring this back because we talked about Eisenhower with his big highways, mm. you know, the highway system. Right. But there is a highway that goes from Winnipeg to New Orleans that was started in 1915, goes through Minneapolis and Minnesota. And I was just thinking as we were talking, and they're reviving this old highway. This is pre-Route 66 stuff. This is one of the only historic vacation routes that went through the heartland of our country. This is like crazy. It's called the Pines to Palms Highway. And there's all this history that goes with it. And so mm-hmm. I think we should do something of the World War II sites as we mm-hmm. go through this. We're, 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 we're going to be doing this, covering this highway for years because there's so much to do. But I think, Mike, we're going to be calling on you on this. Like we, we have a whole mm-hmm. new project. I know we're still okay. doing Fremont. Now we got, you know, we've got all these other generals i mean it's just never ending but um i think i think we should look at some of these world war ii stories that you think of you know you're talking about the the round table i think we should start looking at some of the world world war ii stories from you know when we come see you and then as we go down the highway because it goes it connects back to the louisiana maneuver see what i'm going for i want to do the louisiana It's the Jefferson Highway, so in yes. honor of Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. Go so when you look that up, it. you can see what cities it goes through and what territories. And it's, it's yeah. you know, Route 66 goes to east, west, west, east, but this goes north, south, southwest. Yeah, uh, and it's north. international because I don't, it goes from Winnipeg. You know, yeah. Mm. Oh, and I want to touch on... So World War Two, didn't we work with Canadians because they were British too? Like, isn't that we did? We worked a lot with them, right? So that's another Mm -hmm. thing. And because when we were doing the, we did our first interview. We're going to be doing a show on the Jefferson Highway. I think it's every fourth Thursday we're doing a Jefferson Highway show as we start to Mm -hmm. actually go out there and travel. And then I was looking. I mean, I'm zooming in on the map of every place, you know. And, of course, everybody argued, so there's different paths and everything. Then I got to Alexandria, Louisiana, which is known for, you know, the maneuvers as well, the Louisiana maneuvers training. And then all – and I reminded me of all those, you know, World War II aircraft with them smiling, those tiger faces and smiling shark facey kind of things. Who started that? Like, let's – like, it, was that something just for fun or was that – who started painting the the aircraft? Like, where did that come from? We need, we should do a show on this because even the naming of them. But was that like a tactic, or was that done afterwards? I mean, did they really go into war looking like a like Jaws? You know, what I, am I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So 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 the painting and the naming of aircraft uh, that's been around for almost as long as aviation itself has been around. Um, you know, it, it, uh, you really started to see it more widespread in World War II, um, not only as a morale booster, um, but, you know, also to re- re- really develop a sense of esprit de corps and to say, okay, well, you know, here we are. We are among the first generations of mi- military fighter pilots, and, you know, we are fighting – an enemy that we think is qualitatively representing the forces of darkness. So how do we pump ourselves up as the good guys? Well, you know, let's give ourselves some, let's give ourselves some, some fancy names and uh, let's, you know, paint some iconic images here on the side of the aircraft. And you know what, just to add to the sense of camaraderie and the esprit de corps that we feel, you know, let's do, what the Navy does with its ships, you know, let's give these planes some type of colorful nicknames and we're going to nickname our squadron, you know, like, like the flying bandits or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
yeah, let's uh, let's see how creative that we can be. And you know, I think they took it and they ran with it and they had a lot of fun mm. with it. And they could certainly mm. get away with a lot more because back in the forties, yeah, there were no pretenses of political correctness back then. You know, you could be as uh, you could be as colorful <laughs> oh. and uh, even as offensive as you wanted to be, and nobody said a word about it. Mm. No, but that's really funny. That brings us to, you know, Glenn Burroughs. You've been on a show with him over in England, and he always talks about the World yeah. War II sites in England. And he, he we're going to do a show with him because he's on every third Saturday, I think. Yeah, every fourth, every fourth Saturday. I'll get it right. But everyone, Glenn Burroughs, go check him out on, on Blend Radio and TV.com. And um, he is coming on his next appearance. And we're excited about this, and I'm going to get it straight so everybody knows, one, two, three, four. Every fourth Big Glenn Radio, we're doing a whole thing. I said, well, we need to do a show on what we say in the American English versus British English, right? Yeah. And he sent me a historic document of what the World War troops, like a guide to what they were allowed to say and do in England. Don't say this. This is how you behave. And... It, it it goes into, but at the same time, like political correctness was not there. So it's it's very interesting. You should come on that show, Mike. <laughs> this is going to be so much fun because we're kind of going through this. This because he was like, well, we've got to go. We can't just do about now. Where when you know America says apartments and we say flats. He goes, we need to go to World War II. We have to go then because that's when you know we were going yeah. back more at that point. So it's pretty cool. It's it's interesting. I mean, but that's when we talk about world wars, you know, we were all connected in fighting for the rights of people and for the freedom of people uh, that needed it. And I think we're right there again, you know, and not yeah. saying we're in a world war, but with Ukraine and Russia, it's that whole feeling. So I think your book is timely in that you're capturing, you know, an end of an era and we mm-hmm. shouldn't forget it. And we're also, you know, giving you're giving stories to what people are doing now as well, even though technology and everything is different. The bravery, bravery is bravery, right? And bravery right. with action is, is the thing. So very cool, very cool. Military Mike, everyone, Military Mike, Mike Guardia is on our show every first Monday. So keep up with us at BigBlendRadio.com. And, of course, go to Amazon, go to all those favorite bookstore places you want to go get books. Uh, Go get The Combat Diaries, True Stories from the Front Lines of World War II. And keep up with Mike at MikeGuardia.com. He's also on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. Follow him on YouTube, man. He's got all kinds Mm. of cool stuff going on there, man. You you should, yeah, I'm like, dude, you you capture all kinds of footage and all like, where are you getting this? <laughs> He's got all kinds going on. So you want to follow him there too. But uh, uh, I got you. a lot of friends in low places. No, no. I'm serious. I'm like, I always go, is Mike really part of the secret service? No, because he knows so much. Don't answer that. But keep it. Anyway, we're going to close with a song called Beneath a Solemn Sky, and this is from the Gunboat Diplomats, and you can keep up with them at gunboatdiplomats.com. We haven't done live shows with music for a while, so it feels so good to play their music. And what is a gunboat? Is that is that is like your those are like the ships that go out, like like where we are right now, right? Uh, with the right. boats with guns on them. Yeah, big old. Yeah, so it's it, yeah, it's uh, it's. <laughs> Not it's a little bit bigger than a skiff, but not as big as a destroyer. So, mm. so it's like a it's a ocean tank, kind of. Yeah, you know what? That's actually a very good analogy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I like those little caterpillars, and I always go whenever we see a caterpillar, I'm like, Mike, there's a tank. <laughs> it's doing something <laughs> different. All right, here it is beneath the solemn sky. Thank you so much, Mike. You take care, and we're looking forward Thanks, to Mike. the next segment and hearing what's more on the horizon for your writing so uh, everyone mike will be back on the first monday of may because we're already in april here it is beneath the solemn sky nancy lisa always a pleasure always a pleasure thank you good to talk to you always
feathered garden There's a chapel in the sand Where the wicked and the faithful Come to make their final stand As another bitter season ends Now the hour is at hand For the seeds of hope have fallen On parched and stony ground Can you hear the prophets calling As the world keeps spinning round But it all goes with the territory And for what it's worth The meek and brave prepare a grave In the dusty, barren earth While the bones of last week's promises Are buried in the square The saints and doubting Thomases All bow their heads in prayer But the words will bring no comfort To the foolish or the wise Till the heavens rain on the brittle grain Like teardrops from the quiet, solemn sky Clouds are gathering, a shadow on the land. So rejoice, you sons and daughters, but wouldn't it be rich if the holy healing waters soon undermine the bridge, rushing up to breach the levee on that long and fateful day? Till the rising flood made it clear as mud All the sins are washed away Down the ancient winding river To the dark and briny sea Now these old foundations shiver At the sacred memory Of that brief and blessed moment When providence supplied A sad lament for the penitents Who are damn well sanctified 